this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Max and Richard from Fabric Ventures. Richard and Max are both accomplished. Richard has uh, co-founded three companies, Orchestream, which IPO'd under the ticker ORCL, Next Agent, Tideway. Uh, he was also in the Bitcoin camp uh, since around March of 2013, so almost 70 years. And as we know, each year is about 10 years in human life. So that's 70 years of experience. Max also has a lot of experience, too. He was at Mosaic Ventures and recently just at Open Ocean on the investment team. And they have formed Fabric Ventures, uh, which is a fund really focusing on early stage. And their thesis is a one that I really enjoy. And in their thesis uh, paper on their blog, while Google quietly discarded its don't be evil motto here at Fabric Ventures, we are much more interested in a new software architecture where the motto becomes can't be evil. And I've been seeing that narrative been playing out over the last few months too. So we talked about Web 3.0, tokenization of assets, sound money. We talked about some of the evolutions of new business models and the token uh, tokenomics that we've talked about before on the show. This is a great conversation because these guys are really getting in early. They're finding some amazing projects. Some of those projects have actually been on base layer over the last few months. And so this is a great one to listen to. You're going to learn a lot. Remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice, so please do your own research. And lastly, one of the things I wanted to also let you know, if you are an investor or you are running a project and you would like to get on base layer, hit me up. Let me know. You can reach me on Twitter at DavidJN79. Send me a DM. They're open. And on the flip side, you can hear the conversation with Max and Richard. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Max and Richard from Fabric Ventures with me today. How are you guys doing? Super good, thank you. Um, very busy week, but very exciting as ever. Crypto is always busy. Um, this is going to be a great call. Uh, I've got to know Max and Richard uh, pretty well over the last few months, and I love the way that they're looking at things from Web 3.0 and some of the other theses that they have there. I love this kind of thing that you guys have on your website. While Google quietly discards its don't be evil motto here at Fabric Ventures, we are much more interested in a new software architecture where the motto becomes can't be evil. Love it. And uh, it's something that uh, we've been talking a lot of in the show. And so if you could, uh, both of you, Max and Richard, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and about Fabric, and then we'll dig into what you guys are doing there. Great, happy to, to pile in. I'll, I'll go first and then I'll hand over to, to Max. So yeah, this is just to put a, a name to the voice, although we, we do sound different, I think. Um, this is Richard Muirhead speaking. Um, so um, I guess, um, you know, my journey, and I'll, I'll try and hop through it a little bit here, began when I first got excited by uh, networking and, and dialing up to very primitive bulletin boards in the kind of mid uh, mid 80s. Um, and when, when we first sort of started deploying kind of local area networks into, uh, into my school, and I guess if I'm totally, uh, if I confess, um, it struck me that um, it w- if you could network together all of your students and they could share information about how they were doing their homework, this was a much better way, a more effective way of getting the job done. 
than having everyone scurry off and, and sit on their own. So at least that particular use case resonated to me at that particular point in time. Um, and uh, that obviously mapped through from those pre-internet days to you know the mid-90s. And I, um, with my brother, started um, uh, what was ultimately a telecom software company called Orchestream. Uh, we tried to kind of bite off a, a little bit of everything uh, initially. Um, and because we were um, building our company from underneath the funeral parlor uh, in southwest London um, and bootstrapping it off in the best way we possibly could, we obviously turned to open source as much as we possibly could also because we saw this as clearly the most you know, cost-effective and performant way of building out a, a complex product. Um, so we actually used an open source um, object request broker for the product we built there um, that we then IPO'd in 2000. And uh, mid 2000s, um, and then now is owned by Oracle. Um, so that was a kind of second chapter in, in, in my story. Um, I had um, a, br a brief uh, amount of time I spent helping Axel Partners set up in Europe in 2001 or thereabouts, um, and then switched to incubating a new company with them. And and, and with that, I, um, I I went kind of up the uh, up the stack a, a little bit to the kind of application layer um, and tried to help with the move towards cloud computing and utility computing. Um, and uh, in that context, um, I I guess we were trying to apply some of the the, the kind of the early components of machine learning, um, how to represent knowledge ontologically and so forth, and how to augment knowledge workers in their operations and sort of look at some of the core principles of uh, emergent governance. And so for me, once I'd started my journey kind of investing about 10 years ago, um, uh, when I'd sold that second company, um, when I saw the kind of renaissance of, of AI machine learning and then ultimately was properly introduced to crypto in sort of spring 2013, um, this all came together, um, both with what you mentioned just then, this, this whole possibility of architecting networks that were, you know, don't be evil um, and not just you know, best efforts can't be evil, but also they go beyond that. They pro provide this opportunity to incentivize the participants in networks to try to collaborate to crack really complex problems. And um, and that be those actually kind of machines or women or, or, or men. And so, you know, both of those are very key tenets of the kind of investment thesis uh, that we have um, at Fabric, um, and uh, uh, I worked with a platform I called Firestarter, and then a, a, a fund that came out of the MySQL Mafia called Open Ocean, where I was lucky enough to meet Max. Um, uh, but then we created Fabric because we we think that this next wave of computing is sufficiently distinct and exciting to to merit that kind of attention. Let me just make a quick point. Whenever you see a startup or someone below a beauty parlor now, remember they could be building the next greatest thing. So be kind. <laughs> Although, yeah, well, this was a funeral parlor. A funeral parlor, my God. Yeah, I can, and I can, I can tell you, we, we did have late nights when, when we heard kind of strange noises going on, when there was sort of soaring, and we weren't quite sure was that the coffin or the body. Um, but, um, you know, just added extra excitement to that business plan writing. Wow. Oh my! And Max, let's—I don't know if you can top that, but let's let let's hear what you got. <laughs> That'll be a hard one, I think. Uh, but so on my side, I got an engineering background. Um, grew up in Luxembourg, but half Romanian, half Luxembourgish. Uh, came to, to the UK, to London for university, and, and haven't left this beautiful city yet. Um, 
had a pretty early realization uh, that the most exciting thing I could possibly imagine doing is owning um, an equity share in, in companies um, on sort of the adventures that founders are going on. Uh, so I started making some early investments uh, by myself uh, in Revolut and Monzo and as well as Ethereum and Bitcoin um, and joined some venture funds uh, along the way. Uh, started uh, work with Mangrove Capital Partners in 2014-15 um, and I got to also work with eVentures uh, based in Hamburg uh, as well as Mosaic based in London who then introduced me to uh, Richard at OpenOcean, um, where I, um, I joined the OpenOcean team almost three years ago. Um, and while we were making a lot of these investments, we realized that quite a lot of them had a single sort of business model behind them um, that was very data-driven, but at the same time, it led to this state where the business model was to capture as much data as possible about it from their users um, and in the end monetize that with or without them knowing it uh, to predict what they could potentially do or to potentially sort of build into an ad uh, tech model. Um, and that came very close to sort of the surveillance capitalism uh, that we uh, that, I, that I feared and wanted to stay away from, especially given sort of the historic background from, that my family lives through in, in communist Romania, where there was a sort of constant um, panoptical state of observation and a complete lack of privacy. And so I figured there must be a better way for these business models to, uh, to work. And that's sort of where Web3.0 uh, came, came in where not only it stays away from these um, dystopian futures, but also it might actually just provide a better business model, um, a more inclusive and sort of collective capitalistic um, business model where you are able to incentivize both the suppliers and the users uh, to be much bigger shareholders and stakeholders uh, than in sort of traditional business models. Uh, and so with that in mind, um, we spun out from OpenOcean and created Fabric Ventures. Uh, which is a venture capital fund uh, with a long-term view investing in uh, Web3.0. So let's talk about your thesis a little bit more. Um, Web3.0 and mm -hmm. the tokenization of assets, sound mm -hmm. money. What is Web3.0? Because we've now gone from 1.0, which was in the 90s into the 2000s, and we had everything go up into the cloud, which was effectively 2.0. And now the conversation is, okay, well, the cloud is really not, you know, it's all servers. You know, there have been large conglomerates that have taken advantage of those situations. They have provided free services and they've provided fast services. But at the same time, they have been able to gain a lot of insight and data about all of us who are using them. Um, and so... Talk to us about what Web 3.0 is and kind of what you vision it to be. Or is it real right now? Or let me restate that. Is it real right now? And if it is, you know, tell us more about it. And if it's not, what are we building towards? Mm -hmm. Well, so let, let, me, let me have a go, a go there. Like, so it, clearly there are different ways that you can approach um, uh, describing what we see going on right now, depending on which sort of vantage point you ha you have, but but you know I would say uh, although kind of actually it's super critical that we move away from this situation where you know tech titans have uh, us as the product and we give away our data and there's the possibility that they could be evil and of course that also possibly applies to governments. That's a critical thing, but in but in essence actually um, the shift we can start going through now um, has um, solves that problem actually almost kind of as a sort of side effect or as a byproduct. The the the, sh the shift is um, to uh, a goal of sort of sort of very decentralized operation of the internet and the operation of autonomous agents on that communications network that folks have been kind of dreaming about for you know many uh, decades. 
And so to kind of recap what you, you just said, you know, in the uh, 90s, you know, uh, with Web 1.0, you had, you know, million dollar websites, you know, constrained to delivery to a desktop, might have required a dial up, which is a sound I, I, I can't remember whether I'm thinking back to nostalgically or with fear. And, and then, um, and, and then obviously, you know, e-commerce itself even was kind of highly primitive and everybody was scared of it. So that, that was kind of web one below. Web two, you know, we think of as this, you know, and again, trying to just focus on the essence of it, is this move to the cloud, the ability to run, you know, thousands of or millions of, of experiments on web apps and, and mobile apps in parallel. And when you're successful, to be able to scale up smoothly um, to build something that was uh, dominates uh, the, the planet in terms of the, your particular function. Um, so that was a critical invention that the, the cloud took a lot of work. Um, uh, and then, of course, delivered to the mobile, which means it's not just, you know, the, those couple of hours you've dialed up, but actually in your pocket all the time and, in fact, interrupting your life you know, um, in, to an increasing degree um, through notifications. And then critically, on top of that, the social layer. So that enables you uh, to move out of this phase, and I was I was actually sort of extremely heartened to see this a particular cartoon used in our our, our fabric Cogex uh, Web three conference earlier this uh, this week, um, which was all about on the internet nobody knows you're a dog was the was the uh, uh, the the cartoon, and it was really from the Web one phase because it wasn't until Web two came along and s- suddenly the success of Facebook in particular. That, that people came out of the shadows and they said who they were. And why is that important? That's important because now you can give recommendations to products and services, and then you can act as kind of highly leveraged distribution channel for those services. So in combination, that's delivered as Web2 with you know products we love like Airbnb and Uber and, and so forth. So with Web3, um, you know, so during this time period, there had, as I said, been this desire to kind of build um, highly, you know, these software components that could, you know, use data locally, make decisions locally, and then interact with each other across the network in a kind of, you know, quasi-autonomous fashion, be composed into very complex processes and business processes. That desire had been there, and it was called back at the turn of the century uh, web services. And, um, you know, the uh, various standards bodies will work very hard to try and you know standardize the approach to that. And Tim Berners-Lee actually started calling it the semantic web. He's saying that if we can go beyond just you know exchanging kind of like dumb data, you know, marketing brochures, but to a point where one piece of software can interrogate another and know what it might be able to do for it, and then understand what comes back from that, and trust that whole interaction, then we would have the semantic web. And this. This would be, you know, combinatorially speaking, extremely powerful. And so Web3 um, has now starting to bring that to pass. So the bottom layer, you've got this increasingly homogeneously uh, distributed, you know, hardware you know, layer data center. That is to say that this combination of IoT and edge computing, it's on the walls, you know, measuring temperature, it's instrumenting your houses and seeing if you've fallen over, it's, you know, it's in your cars, et cetera. Then at the top layer, we've got um, now algorithms. And you could argue in some senses this next wave of computing is optimized more for machines or algorithms and autonomous software agents and machines than it is for people. And these, these we've seen that these algorithms are highly hungry for data and they can be very powerful and sometimes with greater you know, beneficial effects and sometimes with unintended consequences. And so critically, there's a, there's a third component that kind of jam if that, in that sandwich, if you will, which um, is the kind of layer of decentralized data structures 
of you know primitives around peer-to-peer trust and primitives around privacy preservation um, and that and this is the cryptographic layer um, and and it also kind of stretches to incentivization and coordination uh, capabilities and so brought together algorithms machine from machine learning this you know peer-to-peer data structures and, and and trust and privacy and then underneath that this this very pervasive uh, global data center that those are the the core components or layers if not actual building blocks of uh, web 3 no one has taken the time to actually break it down that well so I appreciate that um, and as it relates to the tokenization of assets there have been certain people we'll just call them Anthony I love you guys um, with the tokenization of the world tokenize everything everything's going to get tokenized um but this is hard and we've learned that this is hard and we've learned that the systems in place to actually do that and the regulatory oversight and the kind of the things that need to happen to have you know real assets tokenized and to have you know stakes and gps tokenized and to have art tokenized it's happening don't get me wrong you know things are starting to matriculate but talk about the the tokenization of assets. How is that, you know, what is that looking like today? What is the infrastructure for tokenization of assets? Do we have exchanges where those tokens can now be freely traded? You know, are those coming up? Talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start, Richard, again, I'll start um, with a little um, anecdote from my perspective. So kind of, um, I was reading a book in the uh, mid 90s um, by Nicholas Negroponte called uh, Being Digital. And um, I guess it would have been 95. And that was something that brought home to me, you know, very readily the kind of the huge impact that the digitization of content was going to have. Um, and and for us, we, you know, we that's sort of led into a kind of way we think about things, which is that the tokenization of ownership will be as um, the, the digitization of, of content was in, the, in this last wave. So, you know, we see it as, and, given that ownership arguably is significantly more powerful uh, a kind of concept or vector than, than than just a piece of content, you know, you could argue it's a bigger wave than, than we have seen hitherto. So, um, and then uh, I, as a result of that thinking, I guess, and, and our observation, as you said, of what's already starting to happen, uh, I think quite quickly we became tokenization maximalists just to, to some degree. There was certainly some discussions initially. Oh, no. um, not more maximalism. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, I, well, the way I think about that is that that it must be the case that by, you know, by and large, um, it becomes you know essentially zero cost in order to tokenize a, a given asset. Um, I mean, you, you can get a kind of almost philosophical date of how you're aware whether something exists as a real world asset. Uh, which is going to be the most complex thing to tokenize. Obviously, a digital asset is pretty easy to tokenize. And, you know, if you set up certain parameters, some platform is going to probably even kind of create a tokenization of it for you to kind of um, adopt. Um, so you know, I, I see this as becoming a very so sorry, software-driven mo- movement, and therefore it's going to be extremely ubiquitous. That's point one. The second one is, you know, I just can't see how today's capital markets or the markets for trading in these assets can keep pace with the kind of white heat of innovation around, should we say, these new crypto digital asset marketplaces. And I'm already on the record, off the record to, with the Financial Times saying breathlessly that I sort of see these new capital markets as ultimately subsuming and 
superseding today's capital markets, n- not in some nefarious sense, but just in the in the sense that actually the very elements people are most concerned about, you know, transparency and regulation and taxation are the area that they're going to be most brilliant at. Um, so it seems like pretty inevitable. Um, and so when you add the fact that you've then got this way of expressing your ownership of an asset um, and it's infinitely divisible and it can be uh, pro- programmed and it can be then it powered through data and 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 it, and it can be part of this new uh, these new capital markets and these new um, crypto native systems, um, you know, it's going to be pretty exciting to see what's going to happen, but it's, it's clearly going to go that direction. Max, even any other thoughts? Yeah, I think with the introduction of, of digital scarcity, it becomes very difficult to imagine a world in which every asset in the future isn't um, existing in some digital format. Um, by the introduction of the digital format, um, it becomes indeed infinitely divisible, but also it can be shared across the world um, in almost no time. Um, if you're trying to create a market around it, um, you gain a much deeper liquidity pool. Um, but also you can actually create markets for the much longer tail uh, of assets. Uh, so while historically, for example, if you take the, sort of the invoice financing world, um, there was only a certain class of SMEs that could um, factor their invoices uh, because they were part of a certain infrastructure and they were within certain constraints. Uh, but if you can actually tokenize and create digital versions of invoices for every single SME in the world, um, that unlocks a huge amount of working capital. Um, and actually it unlocks a huge amount of financing capital as well. Um, from a much broader set of potential investors. Um, so from that, that perspective, it makes a lot of sense um, for every single digital asset, for every single asset to have its digital counterparts in the future. You just said something that, oddly enough, over 50 some odd interviews I've done for the show, you were the first person to really isolate something, Max, that was really interesting. So there's this notion that we've become an on-demand society. We I've said this before many times in the show, but we demand our content immediately, and that's why Netflix, and we demand our goods immediately. We don't necessarily want to leave our apartments or houses to get that, and that's why Amazon, and you know, now Amazon is delivering things via drones. You just said something really, you know, that hit the kind of the thesis is that we will want to be able to send everything and ownership and we will want to send assets and we will want to be able to send basically anything that we possibly can immediately. We don't want to have to wait. And as anyone knows, we just had Michael Dunworth on from Wire. You know, when you try to send payments for, you know, if you're working in a conglomerate, you have a supplier and you're trying to sell, say, like refrigerators here in the United States and you're getting from China, there's usually a few day wait before that to kind of that wire to kindly finally hit your bank account. In this day and age where we've become on demand, that just doesn't make sense anymore. So really interesting that you brought that up. And it was you said it quickly, but it was a highly important note. Um, Moving on, I want to kind of focus now on the why of now. What is happening now? So we've had, you know, the kind of the buildup. We had the private chain kind of narrative in 15. We obviously had the ICO hype and bubble in 17. We had, quote unquote, crypto winter in 18, which lasted into you know early parts of 19. And now it seems that we've had this resurgence. We have platforms that are shipping uh, like Casa, which I know you guys are an investor in. Um, and so in terms of the, the developers and the people that are building products, 
Um, one of the, you know, going back to, you know, my friend Avichal over at Electric, they had done a dev report in the beginning of uh, the early part of the year where they fingerprinted 20,000 plus code repos and 16 million commits. And they saw the things that were happening from the developer side of things. So what is happening in your perspective from what you see in terms of the metrics? How are, you know, how are projects moving from test net to main net and in terms of usage, you know, using things like Adapt Radar or using things, you know, like some of the DeFi metrics. What are some of the things that you're seeing from the metric side in terms of usage and in terms of build out? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we remember those three distinct periods quite quite well. Um, but now we're on, on one side, sort of from the developer side, we're seeing a lot of it very positive development and a lot of excitement from developers coming to the space from moving on from some of the largest companies to, to start their own projects here. And, and that's sort of reflected uh, by some of the numbers on the downloads of some of these sort of dev environments. For example, Truffle has 1.8 million uh, downloads, Ganache has 1 million downloads, um, and, and Open Zeppelin as well, uh, which is a, a set of libraries for smart contracts, has 700,000 uh, downloads. Um, now, sure, you might argue that some of these downloads are sort of duplicated and, and they don't exactly represent one download, one developer, but they, they show a very interesting sort of correlation in, in terms of the growth. Uh, I think Zeppelin's growing at about 10% week on week. Um, and at the same time, in terms of the actual usage, um, we're seeing, for example, on the 1st of June, um, we had 200,000 Ethereum addresses that were opened uh, or generated. Uh, now, if you equate an Ethereum address to, to, to a bank account or to a sort of digital version of a bank account, um, which, which I certainly uh, do and would like to interact with all future DeFi applications straight from my Ethereum address, um, that's an insane number. Um, they had 200,000 um, bank accounts that were opened within a single day. Um, equally on MetaMask, you have 260,000 monthly active users and uh, 1.5 million uh, monthly transactions, out of which 60% are, are currently on mainnet. Um, so we're seeing some healthy adoption, both from developers as well as from some applications, um, especially in the DeFi space. Um, a lot of people are sort of excited by, by the growth of, of MakerDAO, which despite the, the downturn of, um, of the price of Ethereum, has not only maintained its peg, but continuously increased uh, the amount of loans that it's issued. Um, and on the other hand, you've also got the corporates coming in. So Samsung announced that um, the rest 10 phones are, will be able to, to manage private keys. Apple recently announced their, their crypto kit as well as their Sort of privacy preserving login with Apple button. Um, and we also got Facebook, uh, which is uh, supposedly launching their, um, their white paper for their global coin on the 18th of June and signed up some pretty big companies um, who are committing $10 million each to, to run nodes on within that network, including Visa, MasterCard, and, and, um, and Uber. Um, so there's a lot of excitement um, from developers, from users, as well as from corporates. So we're seeing this sort of um, uh, meeting point in the middle um, where we're um, very keen to see what will be built over the coming months. We'll, we'll add our own stat to that, where we had uh, 10 stages at our, our conference this week on various topics in AI and emerging technologies, and the uh, Web3 decentralized stage got the most live streams of all sta stages. So uh, that's the statistic, by, by I think a factor of two. And, and to add to, I guess, sort of the developer and, uh, and usage metrics are interesting, but also more from an infrastructure perspective, uh, we're seeing a lot of these proof-of-stake networks go, go live at the moment. Um, so we had Tezos a while ago, but now also Cosmos recently launched, and, and some of them in our portfolio, including Polkadot and Keep, are preparing to launch over the coming months as well. Um, and with Tezos, for example, we're seeing, I believe last time I checked, it was sort of 70 to 80% um, of all Tezos are being locked up um, and being staked within the ecosystem. So you're seeing these tokens not in the hands of speculators anymore, but rather actually in the hands of people who care and participate within these networks. Um, equally on Livepeer, there's close to 50% participation 
um, within uh, the transcoding uh, slash validator space. So you brought up the Facebook note, and I, I, I obviously, you know, it's been the talk of the town, and you know, it's been widely talked about since they started kind of talking about it. Uh, but then over the last few days, um, you know, obviously it's been coming more and more. And then they did their announcement a few days ago about, you know, Visa and some of the other participants in there. You know, you know, there are two different kind of, you know, arguments. There's one where this is, you know, this is not necessarily good for, you know, the kind of the crypto community because this is, you know, not really a crypto product. And obviously there's been some debate that Facebook has taken advantage of their place in, in society with abusing data and privacy. And then there's the other side of the argument where it says, okay, there are 2 billion users who are now going to be exposed to what a cryptocurrency is. And so where do you guys kind of lie on that? You know, I, I think I've stated my opinion that a, a business that has hundreds of billion dollars of market cap with 2 billion users who, you know, are now, you know, on the Wall Street Journal, you know, talking about a cryptocurrency in terms of the nomenclature in society, it's probably a good thing. But at the same time, you know, there could be some issues that other people see that it's what they're building is not necessarily the kind of the vision, if you will, of what we're all trying to strive for. I mean, <clears throat> so the first thing I think we would probably both say is that uh, the jury's still out. We don't know all of the details, so we should should be careful not to kind of prejudge what is yet to be kind of announced properly or and indeed you know launched. Um, uh, the second thing I guess I would say is that you know without sort of necessarily pointing uh, you know the finger of blame at at you know Facebook's execs and shareholders. It is kind of the inevitable outcome of of kind of a capitalist system and a publicly listed company uh, that is you know attuned to to optimize profits and you know share price growth. Um, that uh, if its engine of that growth is is driven by taking you know personal data and turning it into a product and and being this kind of rather incredible ad, you know ad machine, that that's going to compromise other aspects of you know personal pr privacy. And I think that's sort of inevitably happened. And once it's automated, it, it, it's it's a, it's a beast that's hard to control. Um, you know, above and beyond it being hard to control in the organization of you know, tens of thousands of people. So, so, um, so I think therefore there is a kind of problem to be solved. And, you know, of course, you know, Zuckerberg's come out and I think, you know, you know, laudably come out and announced that privacy needs to come front and center, perhaps in, inevitably as well as laudably. And, and if he can pull off this kind of pivot, um, that would be uh, pretty uh, impressive. Um, and so then the fact that he's chosen to, you know, attempt to now uh, take, make use of uh, this now maturing, um, you know, new approach to building, you know, software architectures and indeed specifically the coin at the, the center of possibly a sort of payment system, I think is a good thing. And one thing we should you know, hopefully remember is that, you know, as Arthur C. Clarke says, that technologies um, that are sufficiently powerful are indistinguishable from magic. And in fact, you, you know, the actual technology itself becomes invisible. Um, that's a, a bastardization and a, a paraphrasing for sure, but, um, uh, of that particular um, quote, but um, so I think you know, as you said, if if you can get the distribution power of Facebook behind the benefits that some of this new technological wave can bring, and put those benefits in the hand of literally billions of people, um, I think that's going to you know absolutely 
move things forward positively for you know everybody in general. I have fun, one final footnote. I am not clear on, at all on really what the kind of more sort of socioeconomic or even geopolitical consequences of this are, because you've ne- you know if you have um, something that is already a kind of supranational state that is able to kind of sort of shift elections uh, or the outcome elections allegedly. Um, and now it's you know, getting into its own form of, you know, fiat insulated currency or fiat, fiat pegged and, and but nonetheless um, not nation state insulated currency. Um, I'm not quite sure how that plays out. But it, it also depends on, on well, we'll see when, when they release the details. Um, but so they, they acquired the chain space team. So maybe it's built on, on top of their technology. It might also be built on, on top of Ethereum. Let's see um, if it's a... Um, fully permissioned chain um, and intends to say that, then it, it's it's not particularly interesting, um, in my opinion, at least. Um, it's definitely a good step, sort of stamp of approval uh, from one of the largest companies in the world and will definitely bring attention to the space, which is a positive, but not much beyond that. Um, now, if it is a sort of a fully open uh, system, um, then that's an incredible uh, push forward for the whole ecosystem in terms of go-to-market. Because um, for now, we still have to go through the world of convincing people to sign up on Coinbase, uh, do KYC there, uh, do a wire transfer by Ether, then maybe send that to some DEX, buy or lock it up in a CDP, buy a DAI, and then finally be able to interact uh, with a stable currency within um, the Web3 ecosystem. If we can shift that to simply being, oh, you have a Facebook account, upload some money here, um, and you can buy a stable currency with which you can interact with Web3, that's incredibly powerful. And it might be centri- slightly less um, decentralized, but that's okay. We have to move away from this sort of utopian future or vision where everything has to be 100% decentralized. We're, we're quite big proponents of the idea of minimum viable decentralization, uh, where you take away the, the biggest risk factors in centralization and sort of the biggest dependencies. Um, but some as- aspects of all applications that we use on a day-to-day basis will obviously still rely on certain organizations. Um, so in, from that perspective, we'd see it as a very positive thing. Yeah, and if it's a successful experiment, even if it has more limited decentralization initially, there's the capacity for them to make it more decentralized over time and introduce more stakeholders and so forth. The way I think of it is that I remember the days when we first got our first PC in my parents' house and it was a dial-up and it was used, I was using AOL. I was you know, chatting with people and going to rooms and I remember the sound of the dial-up and it was slow and it would get congested, especially you know if I was trying to do it you know, at night. And, you know, then all of a sudden people started saying, okay, what else can I do with this? And they started, you know, instead of just going on chat rooms, they started, you know, looking to maybe do commerce and obviously Amazon kind of cracked that and getting people to want to use the internet to buy things and then speed needed to be enhanced. And so you started to see ethernet and you started to see, you know, more infrastructure being put in place because a demand was already kind of, you know, derived and so, you know, my opinion is that this could cause demand. It'll, it'll initially kind of, it might be, it might not be nirvana to the, you know, the folks that are in the crypto sphere. Um, but at the same time, 2 billion people might say, okay, this is kind of cool, but what else is there? And if there's that, what else is there? Or is there something better that could obviously be massive uh, for the drivers for adoption and for further use uh, in the system? Getting to, the kind of the evolution of things and some of the you know the kind of the token models and you know some people call it tokenomics what are you guys thinking about what's happening there and where value is accruing in a lot of these tokens that are uh, kind of being created by the the projects out there 
Yeah, I mean, let me give a kind of a little breakdown of kind of how we think about it, and then we'll kind of pile into uh, different a- examples. Um, so, first of all, I mean, to kind of cover the the, the gamut, um, you know, we and this is kind of picks up on our previous points we were making about the tokenization of assets. You know, we do believe that you know a mapping of a token, the tokenization to a, a piece of equity or some other financial instrument. Um, is totally valid, and it actually there's a, a lot of support for that because I think it can in, enhance the liquidity, especially for you know capital flowing through to small businesses and so forth. So that's I think going to be a good thing for economies uh, around the world. So that's one class, and then you know. Uh, we also d- do believe in, um, you know, just like maybe the Facebook coin, but also Bitcoin and, and other forms of, of new, you know, cryptocurrency and, and the whole th- sound money c- thesis in general. We believe in that, although what we don't necessarily believe in is that it's very easy to for to create a new digital currency or cryptocurrency to which value will accrue just because in your particular you know, world that you've created in your white paper, it is required to use this token for payment. Um, just because, uh, and you can get into a debate about the equation of exchange and whether or not this is because the velocity would be too high if you're effective and, you know, in, in getting adoption of the, the token and, and that, that debate has raged. Personally, I'm not sure whether that's all not a little bit academic, but by, by definition, I think the argument that is strong is, is that, um, if it's possible to uh, keep your crypto value in another currency that is is more stable and, and a better store of value than this one that has been invented, you're not likely to leave your um, any value in the tokens that are native to the network for very long. Um, and so you're going to minimize, if you will, the working capital that sits in that network and put it, push, you know, any any value that is surplus into some other, so for example, into Bitcoin or perhaps into, into Ether. And, and just to, to illustrate that, um, and the referring to payment tokens, effectively, if for some reason you decided to create a payment token for base layer to to to, to buy rights to listen to to episodes, um, there would be no reason um, for any of us to hold these base layer tokens. Uh, so if I wanted to buy a, a, a one episode from you, um, I would have my store value, which could be dollars or Bitcoin or Ether or Dai, um, and would buy some base layer tokens, which would um, drive up the demand for base layer tokens while keeping the supply stable. I would transfer them to you, but you would probably sell them straight back off. Uh, so in terms of sort of net supply and demand, it wouldn't really make, make much of a difference. And so there should not really be much long-term value accrual in sort of simple payment tokens. Yeah. And 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 even if you demanded that for, you know, uh, us to participate in this podcast or someone to listen, that we had to hold on to some of those uh, tokens, um, you, you I think you've got to get to a pretty significant scale um, to, to start ensuring that that stake that you have by buying those tokens um is going to start to cause value to accrue to them. And in fact, more than just, you know, enforcing that stakeholding um, and driving the scale of the network, you also then need to look at some economic benefit for that staking. Um, And so the kind of the cleanest and simplest model that we kind of, in a sense, look for first is around the concept of a work token. You know, whether you think of that as a taxi medallion or whether you think of it as a, a work permit, or even you can think of it as analogous in some senses to a visa to get into a country to be able to do work, um, some combination of you know those metaphors. Um, you know, then once you hold that, um, you're then permitted to do some productive work. So rather than driving a taxi, it might be that by virtue of that 
sort of those light peer tokens that you you uh, actually hold, you're able to put up some computing power to be able to fulfill the function of transcoding uh, video streams, you know, across a decentralized video streaming network. Um, and um, but I, I think, and, and there are a couple of other examples we can go to. But I think you can extend that to not uh, to 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 be uh, not just applicable to those who are holding and or acquiring and staking tokens in order to do work, but also to those users who are wishing to uh, participate in this network and benefit from a suite of services and discounts and so forth, who also need to stake to be good citizens within that network. But that is a long way away from just it being a means of payment within the network. And, and, and to, to continue a bit on, on some of these work tokens, um, what we find really interesting about them is that there's actually a very rational way uh, to think about their future value. Um, so if you consider that you can hold 5% of all work tokens within a given network, that gives you the right to do to perform 5% of all future work within that network. And if you consider that work to be profitable um, and the network to, to have a lot of traction and a lot of usage uh, and hence a lot of work, um, you can uh, model out your revenue flows over the coming 10 years. And from that, you could almost um, create a DCF analysis on what each or what the entirety of the network would be worth in terms of all of its uh, revenue flowing through it, and hence what your 5% of your tokens would be worth. Um, and so there is a, a rational and sort of logical route to valuing some of these tokens. Um, and then there is sort of secondary questions of how exactly are those revenue splits. Currently, most of these work tokens have a split between the block reward um, and the actual transaction fees. We consider just the transaction fees to really be the um, the root uh, sort of data point to use for, for the evaluation and the block reward rather than being um, part of the revenue. Instead, it's actually more of a redistribution of tokens into the right hands. And what I mean by that is if this work token has a single use and that is um, to be held by the providers of work, then it's quite useless uh, within the hands of any speculator. And so uh, the block reward effectively uh, redistributes um, the percentage of the tokens held into the active hands and removes them from the passive hands. Um, and so, for example, with LifePeer, which has 158% inflation uh, in terms of block rewards, uh, that makes sure um, that over time, uh, the work the tokens tend towards the people who are actually actively participating within the networks. Um, and what that does is that it, it shifts the business model from um, a, a model where you have equity holders and shareholders who come together once a quarter, maybe, uh, to, to sort of decide on the direction of the company, and a bunch of providers, in the case of Uber and Airbnb, uh, who get paid for their work, but they're disjointed, they're not the same. And so you move to a model that actually has much better aligned incentives where those two groups are put together um, and you're incentivizing uh, the providers of work um, with the sort of long-term accrual of value of the network. Um, and that just makes a lot of sense for us. And so that's one model that we, we're quite excited about, but we're also seeing a lot of other models um, arise in the space. So we started with sort of the speculation on volatility, which was a sort of exchange of custodians, um, which were traditional equity companies, which are doing very well. Um, moved on to some of these payment tokens, which we're less convinced about, and some work tokens, which we're sort of very excited about, but also some governance tokens, which allow you to have a say in the direction of which your network is going, um, as well as some uh, companies and, and projects providing the UI and the UX for certain projects, um, and for which they take certain fees. Um, so there, there's a whole range of uh, different business models which are arising that are really native to Web3, uh, and we've written a more extended blog post on, on this, which we can link in the show notes. And yeah, and just as a kind of final footnote on that, you know, the way we look at it is that you you can move from this kind of company-driven or one in a model, the kind of the capitalistic sort of firm, to one that is more of a, a collective. And as Max has just said, then you have this uh, stronger alignment between all the different stakeholders. People can uh, be providing services, but also have a stake in the in the upside and, and the future of the collective. Um, 
But, but also there's another difference there, which is that, um, or two differences to point out. One is that it should be possible or more easy to adopt what we, we see as a kind of a, a Bezos style approach to building your business. That is to say, is, is to re um, deploy the fruits of the, the you know, of the, everyone's collective labors back into the success of the network um, and, and set that expectation and be able to drive that from very early on. Obviously, famously, Bezos did that with his very first uh, letter to shareholders back in, in 98. And then, you know, if you want evidence as to whether or not that can be effective in building a very high scaled and very complex thing and from an extraordinary kind of simplistic start, then you only have to look at Amazon and its, and its triumph. Um, uh, uh, you know, albeit possibly with some downsides, but you know it's clearly been within that system very uh, successful. Um, and and so so we think that's a, a kind of a, a better approach. And the other thing to think about is that the um, the elegance of this is that uh, you can uh, program and optimize the way in which you are uh, thinking about uh, the direction of those different you know revenue flows through to earnings and and cash through the system. Um, in a much more flexible way than you ever could if this was all baked into kind of paper and legal contracts from the get-go in in in, in today's uh, capitalistic and uh, legal structures. Um, so I think, and that is at the heart of what we're seeing is innovation, not just in terms of technology, not just in terms of new businesses, but ultimately new business models that that allow us together to crack problems that you just couldn't crack before. So first and foremost, Base layer is not doing an IEO and is not releasing tokens and is not minting tokens. So just everyone know, that. <laughs> everyone know that I am not doing that. <laughs> that is not um, that is not in the business plan for for the show. Um, but in all seriousness, I'm curious in terms of you know kind of you talked a lot about staking and you know obviously there's more proof of stake protocols that are coming up in systems that are using the, the consensus. Um, you know, some of the issues, you know, I've had Silvio from Algorand on, we had Maneeb from BlockSec on, we had Ori from BlocksRoute on, and, you know, talking to people that are working through distributed systems and have been using and have been theorizing and have been practicing with distributed systems for years, the infrastructure that we currently have today um, what is the current infrastructure that we're using that all of these systems are using today? Is it really is it optimal? Is it, is it, are we just, you know, in my opinion, it seems that a majority of the things that we're using today are just being built on top of AWS and, and Google's kind of fiber out there. And, you know, I think the future, you know, for us to really be decentralized and see the vision of this is that we need to have more infrastructure that is, Purpose for decentralization. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on the, on the current market infrastructure that we that a lot of these things are being built on today. Yeah, so indeed, a lot of the staking providers um, are, are largely based on AWS. Um, although, from our work with, with staked, for example, um, we, we know that um, they, they have a lot of backup servers in the different geographies uh, in case any um, of these providers go down. Uh, but ultimately, what another aspect we're very excited about is uh, the direction that Casa, for example, is pushing into, as well as Helium um, or, or Dapnode, uh, which have the idea of sort of one node per one house, or one house, one node, um, in which uh, you as an individual are able to run uh, some of these uh, networks on your node and the, albeit a small one, a validator that effectively sort of meshes out the distribution and the decentralization of providers within the network. 
Um, and so one of the reasons for which we were so excited to, to partner up with Staked um, is that their business model is not just, hey, give us all your tokens and we will stake them for you, but rather that they will be able to create white label solutions for anyone who wants, wants and wishes um, to stake their assets. So we as Fabric will, have our, uh, will be able to have our own validators for some of these networks um, and other investors will be able to have their own uh, validators. So that sort of spreads out um, the distribution of, of token holders as well as validators uh, throughout the globe. So that's one aspect that um, should help within this push towards a more de decentralized and distributed uh, set of uh, infrastructure providers. Yeah, and, and look, at taking that point, um, I think other than those who are kind of very much in the know, such as the, the protagonists you mentioned, um, you know, Blockstack and Blockstrad and so forth, I, uh, I think there are actually relatively few people who have fully absorbed um, the impact kind of right at the bottom of this stack as well as at the top of the stack. So the top of the stack we can be mentioning actually the impact on organizational structures and business and business models and nations and all sorts of things. So let's, we can go that direction, but that's obviously, you know, also often best fueled by some good cheese and some red wine. Um, but the, you can also go down the, the, the stack um, and into the kind of data center it, itself. And if we're going to, as you said, have um, very evenly uh, spread computing infrastructure that can sp support these sort of cryptographic functions that we're talking about um, and can also uh, do compute and file storage and um, uh, have little compute um, jobs arrive to operate on locally stored data kind of you know on an ad hoc basis and this all to operate effectively there's going to be quite an impact you know through to the data center architecture um, uh, the architecture of the blades all, through, all the way through the, the kind of the, the nature of the silicon uh, actually is in these data centers so i think that's a uh, something that is we've already seen it obviously through the optimization of proof of work you know mining uh, but we'll now see it through the impact of proof of stake and, and in general of the, the these cryptographic architecture that has been deployed in this new software architecture it's going to create different traffic patterns and different compute patterns from what we had before Thank, yeah this is a conversation that i definitely want to continue having with you guys and others because it's it's really interesting and i think you know we we had a little bit of a taste on what it could be and i think you know, if we start seeing real dollars coming into, you know, kind of as Ori calls it, layer zero, I think that could be really interesting. Um, moving towards the top of the hour, you know, one of the last things I wanted to talk about is your your kind of the way you're thinking about Europe versus the United States versus China. Um, it does seem the United States and China are getting into a nice little trade war. And, you know, obviously that can be talked about in a different way. We don't necessarily need to focus on that. But in terms of the regulatory side, in terms of where the talent is going, it seems that the United States has been slower than others and that, you know, you're starting to see talent leaving the states here and going other places where there's more open arms. Um, and so what is the, the the sense that you're getting in terms of how talent and regulation are kind of playing each other in those three different markets? Sure. So, I mean, the, I guess the first thing that, that we like to be super clear on is that um, in that net, we're big proponents of technology as a, a force for good. And that, that the way in which this new wave is going to be uh, allowing people to cooperate around the globe um, is going to be a net net uh, positive that sense but also that um that this is not a zero-sum game um, um uh, but 
that being said, it is clear to us that within you know Europe, um, nation states, but also the you know European government, take the opportunity and um, and the challenge of you know AI and robotics and indeed you know decentralized data structures and crypto uh, very seriously, and and are looking to uh, put. Uh, significant investment behind it at the research level uh, and being sophisticated customers uh, in, ba- in backing you know, venture funds and, and so forth. Um, and and so I think that and and so that's the first thing. I think there's fertile ground for it within Europe because you know Europe uh, has got a lot of things to its advantage. I mean, you know, you always got to play to your advantages. It is a very big economic block, not as homogenous as the U.S. and that's sometimes a chance for expansion, but sometimes can be a gift in terms of thinking of global expansion. Um, it's uh, got you know more developers and, and indeed more STEM PhD graduates per annum than, than the US. Um, and it's got uh, some great hotspots of uh, you know both industries like financial services, but also uh, technological sectors like you know artificial intelligence and machine learning that um, have demonstrably been producing a fantastic right results like uh, you know technology behind Alexa and Siri and, and obviously the DeepMind unit at, at Google and, and so forth. So um, these are all great. And then on top of that, I think in this era of open source, the ability to to knit together quite you know broadly distributed teams of developers and build great projects is uh, is been demonstrated to be highly effective um and uh and so folks are doing that across europe you know to this day in in um uh in 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 these different projects and then um you know there is an additional component um in europe which is that um uh coming out of the last you know financial crisis you know before which the majority of developers were actually employed within banks now people are alive to the you know the the role models and the excitement of entrepreneurial you know endeavor and startups and then the startup science has really developed and developers have started focusing on those opportunities um, and if you couple that with um, you know the purpose that one can draw from trying to rebuild the internet as as you know or instantiate some of the original vision of the internet in a sort of truly decentralized way without the concentration of power and money in these tech titans and, and move away from you know, don't be evil to can't be evil. This is pretty appealing, especially to folks who have seen some quite extreme political situations over the last hundred years. And folks talk about it in a sense as kind of a bit of a third way. Um, you know, should we say, uh, uh, this is not meant to be pejorative, but, you know, less kind of like freewheeling and, 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 and a cowboy on the enterprise side that sometimes happens in the States, maybe perhaps less controlling as it has sometimes been seen to be in, in, in China. Uh, but some balanced way in between those two. We've talked a lot about, you know, kind of thematics, and we've talked about, you know, a lot of the things that you're thinking about in terms of what point three, uh, you know, 3.0 and about, you know, different staking models and valuation. We've talked a lot about the way that you guys process and think about this world. And one of the things that we like to do on the show also for the listeners is a way for them to kind of get to know our guests a little bit more personally. And as you've probably listened to the show, um, hopefully you're prepared for this. But, you know, two of the things that we like to kind of ask our guests are what they've been reading uh, recently. Anything that is either crypto or non-crypto related is obviously fully acceptable. Um, And then music. 
And so you guys are both overseas. And so, you know, Max in Germany, I hope you have some pretty good music. And Richard, I'm sure, you know, being in London and around the area, I'm sure there's some, you know, pretty good stuff you're listening to. So we'd love to hear kind of, you know, what you've read recently and type of music that you like. So, so, um, um, uh, I probably didn't prepare for this as well as I, I, I might have done, uh, but here's my answer. Um, so I have two young daughters, and so I think the thing I've been reading most recently uh, and enjoying at least is uh, uh, going back to reading Winnie the Pooh, um, and um, within which you know those those pages you can find actually some pretty interesting philosophies of Pooh. There's actually a book called The Tower of Pooh that people might want to re- read, but um, but it, I'm particularly fond of it also because. Um, uh, I, I grew up a little bit once we sort of settled here from, from Australia, um, in and out of the Ashdown forest, which is actually kind of the basis for a hundred acre wood, uh, down South of, of London playing poo sticks and, and so forth. Uh, and so it's pretty good being able to read that and share, share that with my, my children. And in terms of, um, uh, music, uh, I, I mean, I, I, again, I, I mean, I've, I guess been dipping into some Frank Ocean and stuff like that recently, but, but I think my, um, I would have to go for, um, yeah, yeah, probably Frank Ocean would be the one. And on, on my side, I, I guess. The Winnie, uh, the, the Winnie the Pooh stuff is is fully acceptable. You know, I have two kids, so and so it's it's usually, you know, it, it's things of that nature. And in terms of music, you know, thank God now they're starting to get a little bit more sophisticated. But for a while, there was Baby Shark. So, you know, as a former DJ kind of who always was very, you know, music focused, you know, my music selection for the last few years, up until the last, you know, two or so years was, was suffering. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, you know, that those are great books. And uh, I found that the children's books, when you read them as an adult, there are definitely a lot of hidden things in there that you didn't realize about. Max, do you have anything that you've read or you listened to? I've got Richie here. One footnote: you reminded with with Baby Shark. I'm not going to talk about that that particular song. We try and avoid that one. But I will also be in trouble if I don't mention as one of my uh, fa- favorite bands, uh, Champagne Super Chillin', which is the band that my brother Andy uh, Ferro is in uh, down in Nashville, Tennessee. Nice. And on on my side, to um, well, uh, I've written original Luxemburger. Um, I, you mentioned sort of good music in Germany. Um, I'm actually quite uh, on the sort of French-speaking side um, of Luxembourg. And so most of my music, actually, but what I enjoy listening to most is some good variété française. So anywhere from Jacques Brel to Charles Aznavour uh, to Michel Sardou, um, so, which probably most people don't listen to, but um, it, it is extremely interesting if, if you speak French. Um, whereas for the recent readings, um, Actually, this came recommended by, by, by Santi, Santiago Seri from Democracy Earth, who, if you haven't had on the show, I, I definitely recommend bringing on. Um, and he uh, recommended reading the, the Relevance of the Communist Manifesto by, by Zizek. Um, and it's taking a look at sort of the evolution of where capitalism has gone today and comparing it to some of the original writings of the Communist Manifesto. And as someone who's half Romanian, it, it's almost painful to, uh, to refer to some of these ideas. Um, but actually, I find them very interesting. Uh, the idea that we've moved away from uh, the sort of profit generation and capitalism being generated by the exploitation of workers and labor, uh, but rather to the Facebooks and Googles of the world uh, that are generating um, their revenues and their profits by appropriating 
uh, rent on the content and ideas uh, that we as a collective user base um, are are generating. So on the what he calls the the general intellect um, that the society is building, which have very few companies uh, which are, are are profiting on. And there is actually no link to, to Web 3.0 or crypto or blockchain within this book, but I, I found it uh, rather relevant and an extremely interesting short read. Awesome. And uh, again. Max, I think you, both of you actually never heard of, you know, Frank Ocean I've heard of, but um, always love to get music selections. But I, I think I just started the podcast just so I can load up on my Spotify, you know, kind of playlist so everyone can just give me their best music so I could have the best music out there in the world. Um, I, I'm obviously kidding, guys. Um, again, I want you to include some French songs in there. I would love to see that. I, I'm happy to do so. Your, your audience um, may or may not want you to include the French songs. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last thing that we like to do for our guests is anywhere that people can learn more about what you're doing, learn more about Fabric, tell them where they can go and uh, find you guys out. Sure. I mean, our website's fabric.vc, Victor Charlie, um, and uh, we have a reasonable number of posts on, on Medium under Fabric uh, Ventures. Uh, and uh, actually a whole bunch of content from the recent uh, conference we put on with the 80 speakers, as I've been mentioning a couple of times, uh, will be going up uh, on Medium, through Twitter, and um, and also uh, on the website. And, and, and both of us are also on Twitter, I think, pretty reasonably easy to, to, easy to find under our names. Awesome. So this was Richard and Max from Fabric Ventures. If you check them out, you'll also notice that we are very, very aligned on the projects that we're bringing on. Casa, Blockstack, Keep is going to be coming on, Ocean, Polkadot is going to be coming on soon, guys, Tagomi. And so, you know, lots of really great projects that these guys are looking at. And the way that they're viewing this market is really exceptional. So go check them out. Um, again, Max and Richard, thanks for coming on the show, and we'll be talking to you soon. Take care, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dave. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash baselayer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter. Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.